That's the right place to eat. I know. And we have a we have a microphone. Hello. Uh, Turn to what? I don't have a I don't have a switch. Just says number fourteen. Well. All right. There it is. Hello. Hello. I got a lot of bass. We won't need all that bass. Or we'll need some volume, maybe. I sound like I'm... Hello. 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 There you go. Oh, that might be a little loud, actually, for me. Could you just make it perfect, please? No. Move. Okay. Uh, stay right there. Well, how many of y'all had to do that when you were a kid, when you only had antennas to get the channels? And, you know, when you couldn't pick up a channel, your parents sent you outside to turn the antenna. Anybody? So I would have to turn the antenna. And for some reason, if you're holding it into a place, they could pick up the channel they wanted good. But when you let go of it, it went fuzzy. And so I have often had to stay out there for a little while and hold the antenna. Yeah, you yell. Right there. Yeah, right there. And you, you take off and go, what? I just let go. Well, hang on to it for a second. And you're out there, you know, hanging on to the antenna. Or you're in your room doing homework before the days of the remote, you know. And your dad, Andrew, he called me Andra. Andra, Andra, come here. Why? Why? Hurry. Would you change the TV? Yeah. Would you turn that up a little bit? I can't hear it. <laughs> so, thank. Yeah, uh-huh. I know, yeah. I, I, we were just talking about the other day, the old phrase of the phone ringing off the hook or ringing off the wall. I mean, the younger generation, they don't have any knowledge for what that means when the phone's ringing off the wall. Uh-huh. That you pull? Yeah. I know, we have to learn. Relearn how to use a rotary dial. Anyway, fun things. Okay, well, we're going to get started this morning. Let's open up in prayer. <clears throat> we need to remember Angel. He's stuck in Costa Rica. Um, and his, his um, condition was not kidney stones upon further investigation. It was prostrate. Is that right? Pros Is that the right word? <laughs> it's, like, it's like another word. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, and he is, Giselle told me he's planning on flying back on next Saturday to have... She said he's, he's not hurting today, so that's good. He, he's gonna, he won't have surgery in Costa Rica, Giselle told me. No, he will not have surgery there. He will have to have surgery here. He, here, my speech impediment's working hard today. Anybody, anybody else have anything that they want to mention? Yes, John. Yep. Yeah. That's good. Not a stroke. It was, it was an infection, correct? That's good. That was good news. Anybody else? thought I saw another hand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for that you hear and answer prayer. We pray right now for Angel, that you would touch his body, Lord God, that, that even in this moment as we agree together in prayer, Father, we ask that you would completely rectify the situation just through healing power, Lord God. We ask that you would apply the balm of Gilead, that your strength and your power, Lord God, would return everything in his body to normal. And Lord God, when he meets with the doctor, that they will find nothing wrong with him, and he will rise up and walk out, Lord God, not to have to suffer and face this again. Lord, we pray, Father, for total restoration and healing. I thank you, Lord God, for touching Dick Murphy. I ask God that you would continue to restore him and heal him. I thank you, God, for each person that's here today, Lord. I ask that you would open up your word, reveal, Lord God, great things of truth. God, open our heart. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place and ask you, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would speak, Father. Speak into hearts, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit today, um, this message is literally hot off the press. I sat down my phone this morning. I have tons and tons of notes. I've got, I could write a curriculum already on what I have, but as I read through where I thought I was going to start, it just nothing had life. I don't know if you're, 
you teach. It just nothing had life in it. I just thought, not that, not that, not that. Well, I had a message written in the back of a book, and I was working on it and didn't know when I was going to give it. So I ripped it out. These are the back pages of the book. As I was reading the book, I start writing. And so then this morning, I thought, i got to get that down because I don't know if I can even understand this. So when I put down my phone and I, when I picked up my phone to date what I had written today, it was 825. I thought, oh, dear Lord, I'll never make it to church. So it's a miracle. I was here early. So we have already witnessed this morning a miracle of God. So I expect great things from this message. So... As we get started today, I want to continue talking about the reference there and just spinning off of that, the Holy Spirit groans that we saw in Romans 8. Now, what three things groan? We've talked about it enough now. Maybe you know. The earth groans, creation groans. Who, what else groans? There's three groans mentioned in Romans 8. Creation groans. What else groans? The Holy Spirit groans. What else groans? And we groan. Those are three groans that are mentioned in Romans 8. That the earth, all of creation groans to be liberated from, the, from, from bondage. That the sons of God would re- be revealed. And we groan in ourselves, presumably because of sin and bondage. And the Holy Spirit groans, as the word says, with, with intercessory groanings too deep to be uttered. Right? So, but... The only one of those three groans that is actually effective is which one? The Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? That the Holy Spirit is the only groan of the three that has an efficacious quality. The only one that has a tool to bring about the change. Creation can groan to futility. All of creation's groaning. Earthquake after earthquake after earthquake could happen in the natural realm, couldn't it? And would it repair the destruction of the earth. Isn't it funny? It would just do what? Create more destruction. Mankind groans under the weight of sin and the separation from God. And in his groaning, I mean, how does mankind, if, if, if this, I'll just reach a little bit here. If, if creation, an earthquake or a tornado or something like that is a manifestation of the earth's groaning, then man groaning in bondage, what might be a manifestation of man's groaning in bondage of sin? Alcoholism? Any kind of addiction? What is it? Depression? Good. Anger? What was it, Michael? War? Good. That's another one. That's interesting, too, because that's even more of a manifestation on a larger scale, isn't it? So we have these destructive forces that are all around us through creation or even through humanity. And what if we looked at through the lens of that's the groaning. Groaning to be released from what? Bondage. From, <clears throat> the word calls it futility. And if you look up the word futility, it's a very interesting word. The word futility or vanity comes from that as well. Futility or vanity, it, in the original um, Hebrew context, it means a leaky vessel. Isn't that interesting? I mean, how many of you have ever felt like a leaky vessel? You know what I mean? Just put something in, just runs out on the ground, just put it in. And that, you could see how that, that is a perfect portrait of futility, isn't it? Man, pour it in and it runs out. Pour it in and it runs out. This reminds me of Jeremiah when the Lord spoke to he, when spoke through him and he said, My people have committed two evils. They have hewn out cisterns. You know what a cistern is? Large cavity. That, a cistern, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's a portrait of futility, of a leaky vessel. They have forsaken me, the living God. And they have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, that's an example of the groaning of mankind and his futility to fix what is wrong. Isn't that interesting? But then enter the Holy Spirit. He groans to efficacy. He groans to repair, to repair what is wrong. So what does he do to repair what is wrong? Does he repair the broken vessel? I think he just gets rid of that vessel and creates a whole new one. 
I think that I think that we become, as the Bible says, there's a new wine skin. The old wineskin of the old way of doing things in mankind, it says that you don't put the new wine into an old wineskin. Why not? Because the old wineskin won't hold it. It'll break apart, and what will happen to the wine? Futility. There's another, see, there's another portrait there of futility. You see this over and over and over again in the Word of God. And so it's kind of with that today, I want to talk about um, the Holy Spirit groans within to reveal to us beloved identity. Now, you've heard me talk of beloved identity before, and I've got it from the book of John, as John identifies himself that way. The book of John was written, um, what are you looking at me for? I thought you were fixing to say something. Oh, I thought you said something. Sorry. I thought, I thought have I already messed up? <clears throat> the book of John, John reveals himself as who? His own self-proclamation. The disciple whom Jesus loved. How do we feel about that? I've, how dare he say that? What else? What did you say? That's good, yeah. But see, I've heard both. <clears throat> I've heard a lot of people say, in jest, in jest, saying, you know, John wrote it 70 years after and all the other disciples were dead, so he was free to say whatever he wanted to. You know, I'm the, I'm the disciple, you know, who Jesus loved. You know, not to say we take that and put it through a human lens, don't we? And what we hear in that statement is maybe he's saying he loved me more than you, nana, nana, boo, boo. Do we not kind of hear that sometimes? I mean, our, Jacob set our password at the house for our Wi-Fi. And so it's so funny. Everybody can say, what's the, what's the Wi-Fi password? Jacob is the best. <laughs> and if you want the high-speed one, it's Jacob is the favorite. You know, so we can understand how, <laughs> you know, we do that. <laughs> and so every time, you know, when you're having to type in the Wi-Fi password, you're reminding yourself, you know, Jacob is the best. You know, so much, what would happen if we identified ourselves a little bit more in those codes in that way? Wouldn't it be a better place? Now, I'm not talking in arrogance, and I'm not talking saying things. What if we felt so beloved of God that we, said, that we said, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves? Wouldn't that be great? And I think that's the message there. And I think that the Holy Spirit is groaning within us to reveal to us beloved identity. And in so doing, he allows us a freedom from an orphaned spirit. You know, that is probably, I think, one of the greatest tragedies of our day is an orphan spirit. I think that every, most, most, I can't say every, most of the trouble in our land today is, has a direct result to fatherlessness. And I think that that's a sad reality. And it's, it's born in an orphan spirit. Now, it's not that the fathers implant the orphan spirit. It's something that's just handed over. See, it's more leaky vessels, more futility, just trying to play out. And one generation hands the orphan spirit to the next with more bondage than the last generation has, who hands it to the next generation with more bondage than the prior generation has, and so on and so forth, until you get to a place where you have a society maybe such as ours that's standing on the edge of decadence. And when I mean standing on the edge of decadence, if you study any society throughout history, when a society gets to the place where they are decadent, they go after all pursuits of pleasure for the sake of self. If it looks good, feels good, do it. That society is on a dangerous precipice of being completely destroyed. And we talked to our children about this back in the summer. We we're talking about, you know, COVID and all the implications and the governmental restructure and it's different things that are going on in the land. And I think it's obviously anybody who's got half an eye and, and, you know, one ear can see, right? This is not prophetic. This is just um, more predictive, you know, and so we look at that and we see that the climate of our, of our nation, our nation, the United States of America, we are at a precarious place. And now we've said it for years. We've said it for years. Whenever you see a society who so totally headlong just emulates themselves after the Romans one account, 
If you don't know the Romans one account, they wouldn't retain God in their knowledge, so he gave them over to do what they want. They wouldn't, you know, they refused. And so through that, when you see a society, any society in history that begins to move in that spiral of decadence, of doing whatever they want to do whenever they want to do, no holes barred, you see a society that is on the edge of complete and total disappearance. Like ours. And now I told my kids about this, you know, and it was funny because Jacob said, you know, Mom, I would rather see people turn to God in a time of crisis than see them continue to live on in a supposed state of happiness and go headlong into destruction. And, I, and we talked about it, and I said, you know, every, when, when Rome fell, there was a generation on the ground. When Pompeii was destroyed, there was a generation on the ground. When in AD 70, when Israel was invaded by the Roman army, there was a generation on the ground. Isn't that interesting to think of, that any time in society where they see total upheaval and change, and I'm not saying, you know, just give in to it, but I, I think we have to cognizantly, cognizantly realize that, that there's aspects of our day that we live in, that it's time to rise up, that we might be the generation on the ground. You see what I'm saying? And what does that look for us as the generation on the ground? And I'm not saying that God cannot move in and, and change and, and thwart and, and reveal, and I'm praying. I'm praying that truth will, will prevail. I mean, I'm so believing in truth to prevail. But what if truth does not? If truth doesn't prevail, then we have probably, in our day, witnessed the end of democracy as we know it. Just like that. But then that doesn't mean the church is counted out because the church does not set under a banner of the red, white, and blue. It sets under a banner of the blood of Christ and that we will prevail. The church throughout history, no matter what the political climate has been, the church has risen. The church has not only risen in times of persecution, the church has waxed strong in times of persecution. So I believe that no matter what happens in our landscape today, the Holy Spirit is doing a work within the lives of his people, that he is moving us from a place where we don't identify ourselves as orphaned, but we, we're in that orphan spirit that what it forces us to do, it says, if I'm good, if I do good, then I'm good. And that's pride. And if I do bad, then I'm bad and we're condemned. But rather, the Holy Spirit comes to bind us in sonship, to, to bring us to sonship. Let's read Romans 8 and 15 together. I just wrote it in my notes, so I'll give you, I'm going to open my water. Romans 8 and 15 says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves. Hmm. That's good. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Slaves live in fear. Can we, drive, can we, can we derive that from what I just read? Slaves live in fear. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry what? Abba, Father. So we see that, that the spirit groans within us to reveal beloved identification through our sonship, that we have been called the sons of God, not not a son of lesser caliber than Jesus. And now this is hard for us. And I might just step on your theological toes with this, but we'll get to it in a second in John 17. That the reconciliation that we have in Christ, does it make you a lesser caliber son than Jesus? Now I know you're like, well, I'm not, but Jesus was perfect and I'm not perfect. And I, you know, we got all these, we always start backing up from statements like that. But we're going to see what Jesus said about it in just a second in John 17. So just hold that right there. But the Spirit, we're talking about this Holy Spirit groaning within us to reveal beloved identity, driving home the fact that we are sons to the point that we cry, Abba, Father, that we cry, Daddy, Daddy. The ESV says it there, that we do not fall back into fear. How many have ever been delivered from fear only to fall back? I have. 
Be delivered from a fear, know you're over it, and then seem to fall back into the fear. That's not the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the Berean Study Bible says, not, we haven't received a spirit that returns you to fear. Oh, that's good. The Holy Spirit never returns you to fear. Isn't that funny? Think about it, returns. We're fixing to get in the Christmas season, and all you're going to be making returns. You're going to receive a gift, and you're not going to like it, right? And you're going to go to the store, and you're going to stand in line, and you're going to do what? Make a return. Either return for another merchandise or return for money, but you're going to make a return. So much of our thinking in the orphan spirit is the Holy Spirit gets us, and he finds out we're not his size, his flavor, or his color. And, you know, we didn't do it just right. We just didn't make him feel like, so he does what? He stands in line, and he makes a return to the fear desk. See, the, the Holy Spirit does not return us again to fear. If you find yourself returning to fear, that's not the spirit of sonship that cries, Abba, Father. That's the spirit of a slave, an orphan that says, I have to be good in order to be good. I have to do good in order to be good. See, we have to break this off of us. This is so important. How does the Spirit accomplish this? By teaching, exposing the completed work of Christ. Christ's work of atonement brought us union with the Father. Do you all believe that? Atonement. Let's break down the word, okay? A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. At one meant. That's what it means. Atonement means at one meant. You're at one with the Father. Yes. Mm -hmm. So is that hard for us to get? Shouldn't be, but, but why, why, why is it that we don't get it? The flesh is still an enemy in us, but what has the cross done with the flesh? So we have to, see, we have to reckon, reckon ourselves dead unto the flesh and alive unto Christ. Deborah? I think sometimes we see ourselves apart from Christ. We say, well, that's good. Exactly. And that, and that is set out, spelled out in the word very specifically right here, Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. It says, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. What? What are we? He predestined us through adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ according to the pleasure of his will. Whose idea was it for you to be a son? His, his will. His will. Predestined by his will to the praise of his glorious grace. We say, God, that's grace. What you wanted me. That's grace. By which he made us accepted in the beloved. I'm accepted. I am at one with God. When you see me, you see holy. See, it's hard for people. It's hard for people. I have a t-shirt that says holy, don't I? I always get, it makes people, it stirs people up a little bit. It just says holy on there. It stirs people up. Oh, hmm. Hmm. They don't mind, they don't mind blessed. They don't, they don't mind blessed, do they? But holy? Ho ho you're, you, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Challenge yourself with it. Yes. That's without works. He imputeth. So if we could think of that, imparting the impartation of righteousness without works. And he does it via the Holy Spirit by bringing a new nature within us. Guys, if we could understand this, we believe that atonement is some theoretical, theological, conceptual idea that places us okay with God, but not fully embraced in acceptance. Let me ask you this question. Is acceptance or union, atonement, is it theoretical or in type or is it actual? We've already answered that. It is an actual placement. Fully embrace acceptance <clears throat> identification that brings you into same union as Christ has with the Father. Now let's go to John 17. You are in, how many of you believe you're in the exact same union <clears throat> that Jesus is with the Father? I believe it. You know why I believe it? The word says it. Let's go there and look at it. 
<clears throat> John 17. I'm going to read it in the Passion Translation. You're going to have other versions. I've read it both ways. I've read it a hundred times in every version. This is just the readability of this is beautiful. John 17 is a famous, famous prayer of Jesus. Mm, let's see here. <clears throat> he begins to pray for his disciples. And in so doing, he prays for us as well. I love to listen to someone's prayer life, don't you? If you don't, see, some of you are like, oh, I don't know. That is one of the greatest things that you can do. Now, I, I will tell you this story. We had a woman who came to our church in Hot Springs. She's gone on to be with the Lord now. Um, and she came out of a troubled situation. So troubled, in fact, that the pastor came to us before she got there and told us that she had a Jezebel spirit and we should remove her from the church, that she had wrecked his church. And he was scared of her, wasn't he? And, he? and he sat down, he listened to the pastor, and in respect, he said, I thank you, I thank you for letting me know this. And so she came into the church, and it's just not our style. It's just not our style to go, hmm, to label people with certain spirits and this and that. <clears throat> it's just not who we are. I know it happens sometimes in churches, and it, I think it's unfortunate, honestly. I think people are people are people are people. And I think people do what you expect most often of them. And so he came in and did that, and Mike told me about it, and I said, well, let's just, you know, we'll just proceed with caution. We'll take that as a word of wisdom that there might be issues that this woman may be a, a troublemaker. You know what I mean? That's what we'll just look at, and we'll just love her through it. <clears throat> and so she came in. Sure enough, she was one of those really high-energy, you know, tiger by the tail. She wanted to come in, jump in both feet, and just start starting ministries, and Lord's told me to do this, and Lord's told me to do that, and Lord's told me to do this, and Lord's told me, right? And Mike said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, what I want you to do is nothing. I want you to just sit and learn the culture of this church. And I want you to, to see where the Lord would have you fit because you hadn't been here long enough to really plug in. He said, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to come to prayer meeting on Sunday nights. And I'll, I think we had on Sunday nights at that time, a Monday night. And she's like, prayer meeting? He said, that's all I want you to do is come to prayer meeting. Okay. And so she came to prayer meeting. Now, our prayer meetings are very organic. If you've been to a 714-type prayer meeting, and what you'll do is you'll hear Mike praying a lot. Probably hear him praying. you hear a lot of people. Different people pray at different levels. But even in that church, I think you prayed even louder. I don't know. Maybe you just had more freedom there. It was a Monday night. Maybe you're more awake. <laughs> think, I'm just I'm processing it now. Y'all know how I hate to get out in the mornings, or some of you do. I'm just... Just a little aggression there. So she came in, and then probably a few months, she came to every prayer meeting. Well, that's a good sign for us. Jezebel doesn't usually come to prayer meetings. So I thought, that's pretty good. You know, she listens. And then she came to Mike, and she said, you know, when I came to this church and you told me to go to prayer meeting, that's all you wanted me to do? She said, I thought, mm, that aggravated me. She said, but this is what happened. When I, in prayer... As I listen to you pray, as I listen to your prayer life, it began to cast vision in me, and it attached me to the same spirit you're attached to in a way I've never been attached. Isn't that good? Now, I will tell you this story of mine in prayer. That See, I, want, I like to hear people pray. We're fixing to go to John 17. We're going to listen to Jesus pray. When I was a young woman, I was probably 20 years old, 21. I only had Laney at the time. And we had some women in our church, and they were, you know, elderly women, and they knew how to pray. And they would call me and my cousin Courtney, and they would say, hey, um, we're having a prayer meeting at my house tonight, and I need you to come. It wasn't an invitation. Yeah, that's, you've been told, and you're going to learn today. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't. No, it was, you know, you come, and when you come in, now this was a women's ministry prayer meeting, there was no Ritz crackers or cheese. There was no talking. You walked into the house, and as soon as you got there, you went into the den, and there would be folding chairs like this, but they weren't white. This was back in the day, they're all metal, you know, tan metal. And there would be a folding chair for every person who was at the prayer meeting. That chair was not for your butt. It was for your head. It was your altar. And as soon as you got there, you knelt down at that chair, and you started praying. Now I'm young, and I'm like, you just do, I'm just, all I'm trying to do is blend in. 
keep from standing out, if you know what I mean. You know, so I'm there, and I'm praying, you know, and I'm... And as it got going, those women began to start praying. And they wouldn't just pray. They would prophesy, and they would declare. And the Spirit of God would come into that room so much that I would sit there at that chair, and I'd be afraid to look up because I thought, oh, God's in this place. And I learned how to pray by listening to people pray. I learned how to touch the Lord when people who knew how to touch the Lord touched the Lord in a way that I could hear them. That's an art we've lost. That's been one of the key ingredients to Pentecostalism. You pray out loud. I pray out loud so you dummies can learn how to pray. That's not what we say. But that's a good way to teach prayer. I, I mean, Mike will tell you, who did you learn how to pray from, Mike? Joe, Joe Childs, right? So when you went, mainly Joe, because when you worked as a youth pastor under Joe Childs, he said, what to you? Let's meet for prayer. That's what we do. So we met for prayer every Wednesday, and you went in. And what did you, how did you learn to pray? He prayed out loud. And what did you ascertain from listening to Joe Childs pray? And that he knew how to touch God. By listening to him pray. Now what Mike does, if you're on his staff, you're a, you're a you know, full-time, if you're a pastoral staff, what do you, what is angel or youth pastor, what do they have to do ever? morning and do you pray quietly what how do you pray do you sometimes thunder and stomp and walk and declare yeah and he knows a person he'll tell me this if somebody he's had people on staff before they don't know God you know why and when it gets hot, they, find, they start walking out. That's telling, isn't it? I just thought, that's, that's all free. That wasn't in my notes, but it's just I thought about Jesus. And here we are, and we have our elder statesman, our older brother. And he, let me ask you this question before we go any further. How many of you, you know the scripture that Jesus spent all night in prayer? How many of you think he did that to impress his father or that, so that he could work many mighty miracles? I disagree, but it's okay. I think he loved, I think, I think it was a craving to spend time with his father in a time because if anybody knew beloved identity, it was Jesus. And when you're beloved of the father, who do you want to spend time with? I don't spend time with my husband as an example to anybody. I don't care who knows. And I prefer they not. You know why? I spend time with my husband because I love him. And if time, if, a, if something interrupts a time that we have planned for each other, that's one thing that will make me mad. I will. I'll get mad. You know, a good kind of jealousy, if you know what I mean. And so we've guarded our marital life against the mistress of the church for years. I have told him before, on the days off, I'll say, is your mistress calling? He'll say, yeah, but I put her off. You see what I mean? Because that's, I, see, I don't do that as an example to you. You wouldn't even know it had I not showed you or told you. I do that. That's a revelation of my heart toward my husband's and my husband's heart toward me because I love him and he loves me. I don't spend time with him out of some contractual obligation. See, Jesus spent the night with his father because he spent the night with his father in prayer because he, to do, not to do so would not cost him anything because he was divine because that's a relationship. That's what the Spirit of God is groaning in you to attach you to that beloved identity. Oh, that we would desire the things of God, that prayer would not be some sort of a 
thing to do before you got what you wanted, but a place we spent, a place that you're just like, I got to go to prayer. I will tell you this, that must, most of my life, spiritual disciplines start out as a discipline and end up as an indulgence. I, I spend, I, I can't wait for in the morning. If somebody takes my morning from me, I'm angry. Because that's when I meet with Jesus. I mean, Mike, when you go to prayer in the mornings, do you do so because you're the pastor and it's some, you know, are you paid to do it? You wouldn't know if he didn't. You would know if he didn't. It'd become obvious real quick. Just saying. But that's just, okay, uh, John 17. Yes. That's right. And if we, could, if we get to the place of beloved identity, we start to feel that way. A people who get to pray will pray. You don't have to tell them to pray. Because they love prayer. Not because they love the act of praying, but because they love the one they meet when they get there. Because the spirit inside them is crying out what? Oh, the Father. Hear the relational term there? I want to be where my father's at. Here's Jesus' prayer. Let's listen to him. Father, I have manifested who you really are. We're going to start talking about the word pretty soon. I found a book. Y'all want to read something? It was was St. Agonathius. It's written in 300 B.C. It is good stuff. It's called On Christ on the Incarnation. If y'all want to find it, if you're into that, that would be great. Father, I have manifested who you really are. And I have revealed you to men and women that you gave me. They, are, they were yours and you gave them to me. And they have fastened your word firmly to their hearts. Gosh, who did they fasten to their hearts? What did they fasten to their hearts? I did, I said the word. Yeah. The revelation of God. Who is Jesus? They've fashioned the word firmly to their hearts, and now at last they know that everything I have is a gift from you, and the very words you gave me to speak I have passed on to them. And they have received your words and carry them in their hearts. They are convinced that I came from your presence, and they have fully believed that you sent me to represent you. So a deep love I pray for my disciples. I am not asking on behalf of the unbelieving world, but for those who belong to you. Those who you have given me, for all who belong to me now belong to you, and all who belong to you now belong to me as well. And my glory is revealed through their surrendered lives. Holy Father, I am about to leave this world and return and be with you, but my disciples will remain here." So I ask that by the power of your name, protect each one of them that you have given me and watch over them so that they will be united as one, even as we are one. Now, some would say, that's just in the church. Well, let's read on. While I was with these that you have given me, I have kept them safe by your name that you have given me. Not one of them is lost except the one that was destined to be lost so the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I'm returning to you, Father. I pray that they will experience and enter into my joyous delight in you. Why do you think Jesus spent all night in prayer? But there he said it, didn't he? Joyous delight. How many of you got to be forced with your arm behind your back to go to something that brings you joyous delight? Didn't think so. So that my joyous delight will be fulfilled in them and overflowed. I have given them your message, and that is why the unbelieving world hates them. For their allegiance is no longer to this world because I am not of this world. I am not asking for you to remove them out of this world, but I ask for you to guard their hearts from evil, for they no longer belong to this world anymore. Your word is truth, so make them holy by your truth. I have commissioned them to represent me just as you commissioned me to represent you. And now I dedicate myself to them as holy sacrifice so that they will live as fully dedicated to God. 20. And I ask not only for these disciples, here we go, this is you, I ask not only for these disciples, but also for those who will one day believe in me through their message. Is that you? Is that you? That's you. It should be. You believed in him through their message. I pray for them all to be joined together as one, even as you and I, Father, are joined together as one. I pray for them to become one with us. 
so that the world will recognize that you sent me. Okay, so that the... We have here Jesus praying, and his prayer is for union. What is atonement? At one One with the Father. Atonement makes you one. I am one in Christ, and Christ is one in me. I am one in the Spirit. To fully embrace that acceptance as the same union as Christ has with the Father, I stop aiming then. Now listen to this. I stop aiming at holiness, trying to hit acceptance. And I start aiming at acceptance, and I hit holiness every time. If I aim at holiness, trying to hit acceptance... I can't ever hit the target. All it does is what I talked about last week. If you codify something, you bring the law back in, and you start trying to live by the law, what always is reinvigorated? Your flesh. Sin, because the law is only designed to do what? Expose sin, right? Paul said that, Romans 7. I didn't know covetousness until covetousness, blah, 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 you know, until every kind of covet. How many of you ever gone on a diet? And you made a rule that you weren't going to eat something. And just because you made the rule, how many of you were instantly empowered not to eat the whatever it was you weren't going to eat? That's the only thing you wanted. I mean, you, could, you never ate so much of whatever you denied yourself from until you denied yourself from it. Now, I'm not saying, it's, as Paul says, is the law bad? No, no, the law is perfect. You're not perfect. That's the problem. We have to have another spirit formed in us. So we aim at acceptance and we hit holiness every time. So then John 10.10 comes into a reality. What does John 10.10 say? How many of you know that? The thief cometh forth but to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now something that Mike and I, we argue over the hermeneutic of this all the time. He's gone, so now I can argue, right? He, he won't be here. If you read John 9 and 10, you will find that it, Jesus heals a blind man. And he says, who was born blind, this man or his father? Who sinned? Who, or who sinned that this man was born blind? You know, people are always trying to bring up something to blame something else on, right? And Jesus just sort no one sinned. It's just that the glory of God, the works of God might be manifested. And then he goes in, he heals the blind man, but it happened to be on what day? Sunday, so it caused a big ruckus. And so the Pharisees got all stirred up, and they came, and they questioned Jesus. They questioned the blind man. They questioned the blind man's parents. I mean, this was, I mean, how many of you think, this is a little bit too big of a deal, guys. How many of y'all are straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel, right? Did anybody notice the guy who is now healed of blindness from birth? That's not a thing? We're worried about if it was done properly or not? Is that not ridiculous? Is that not ridiculous? But so we have here, we have religion stirred up, don't we? So religion in the form of the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're like, and who gave you the right? Blah, 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 blah. It's the Sabbath. You're a sinner. You cast out, you know, all these things that they did with Jesus. And, and so Jesus then, he goes into being a shepherd and he said, my sheep know my voice. He said, they only come through the door. He said, I'm the door. I'm the door to the good, I'm the, the doorway to the sheepfold. He said, the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now I ask you the question, who is the thief? hermeneutically in this set of scriptures. I know I haven't given you time to study it, so you're, you're at a disadvantage. Religion's the thief. And we always say devil's a thief, and he is. I mean, he's, he is a thief. We're not saying, we're not going to give him any credence. But in this particular run of scripture here, who is the thief? It's religious system. They're trying to create another door into the sheepfold. But what does religion only do? Kill, steal, and destroy. But what does Jesus do? Life and more abundantly. Because religion doesn't bring you into beloved identity or acceptance. Religion doesn't ever give you atonement or atonement. Religion can't do that for you. But Jesus comes and he gives us by himself a new and living way as the door to the sheepfold and we come into agreement and the promise is what I fear that I don't live enough up to and I'm saying, Lord, help me more and more. I want to live a super abundant life. Is that too much to ask? I want to live a life without limits. I want to live 
a life without limits. Do you think I ask too much? Do you think it's too big to ask that? Do you think I'm in error to ask that? It's been promised. It's promised that, that, that you will have life and have it more abundantly. If you look at that, you'll have total, super abundant life. It's, it's periosis. It's, it's, it's an all-encompassing. It goes completely surrounds you. I want to be so convinced that I am surrounded with the favor, the blessing, and the acceptance of God that there is nothing in this world that can take me off of that. You don't have to tell me to pray, folks. I get to pray. You don't have to tell me to go to church. Dear God, I love church. You don't have to tell me to pay tithe or give tithe or offerings. I want to. Why? Because I want to spend all night with God if I have to because I am accepted. It's my identity. Mm-hmm. That's it. I still, that's it. He, and that is so good because I believe that, and I just read it there, and I'll just get off into this a little bit. I believe that what Jesus came to do was pay for sin, yes. I mean, I believe that. But I believe that primarily, he said it in John 17 there, the very first scripture there, he said, I have come to reveal you to them. I've come to reveal you. I believe that the greatest work of Jesus was not paying for sin on the cross. And I, I hope you don't take that the wrong way. I'm not diminishing that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But I think that the greatest work that Jesus did, because he didn't start out the prayer there by saying, I paid for sin on the cross. I think that the greatest thing he did was reveal the Father. Because I think that our, our image, humanity's image of the Father was broken from the fall. As one who hides from him, who recoils from his presence, who stays away because he's dissatisfied. And, and the repairing the image of the Father is seeing the Father as one who loves us and who has come after us and who's not looking for us to do good before we are made good. So we have to understand this, that we have come, and this is a part of that abundant life, that he is Christus Victor. He has totally repaired us with the Father. Not in so much Western theology paints Jesus and the Father as a good cop, bad cop. I mean, I'm not saying, but we don't say that. We don't say that, but somehow we espouse that. Because we know it would be wrong to say that. We, we know better than to say blasphemous things. But we can hold blasphemous things in our heart. No one knows about it, and it comes out in our attitude and actions all the time. But we think that, that the father was the bad cop, and he was mad as hell, right? And, and he came and he, he beat his son because he wanted to beat us. And Jesus was going, no, don't beat them, father, beat me. Will that patristic view or fatherly view of God, will that bring you into a place that you want to spend all night with him in prayer? It will not. And that has been the sale of fundamentalism of Western theology. Now, I know many of you, you've grown up different than me. And I know that in this room, I grew up without rules. And I thank God for that, honestly. It really worked to my advantage. I didn't have a lot of rules. My dad's philosophy was, what time do you want me to be home? You know what time to be home. What time? You know what time to be home. And sometimes he would say, be home early. What's early? What time? You know what early is. That's pretty dangerous, isn't it? What do you do? He empowered me. He said, I believe in your ability to make good decisions. Be home early. So I didn't grow up with rules. I didn't have rules about what I wore. You know what the rule was? Any, I could wear anything I wanted to wear. You know what my mother said? 
She said, whatever you're big enough to wear, wear it. So I have worn things that were probably inappropriate, but then it was like, you feel the uncomfortability of being inappropriate? So that becomes the criteria by which you begin to discern what's right and wrong. Mm, socially, that wasn't right. But if your parents give you a rule, you can't wear that, what's going to do? I'm going to wear that all day. I'm going to sneak it in my bag and wear it when I get outside. Right? So I didn't grow up with rules in a legalistic kind of way. And I, I met a girl in school, and she wore culottes and pantyhose every day. I mean, we're in high school with her tennis shoes. And I, every single day, every single day. So I'm very just black and white who I am now. I was like, hey, Jennifer, why do you wear culottes every day? And she got so mad at me. I found this. People who live under legalism are mad at everybody else. She said, it's a part of my religion, okay? I was like, whoa. There's a culotte religion. I had no idea. I'm like, dang, that's terrible. So she wore her culottes every day. And I wore whatever I wanted to every day. And you know what? She was mad at me for not wearing culottes because she ultimately didn't want to wear culottes. They run a band. Those are terrible. I mean, high school? Who wants to wear pantyhose every day? She had to. It was a religion. So see, I say this to say that I come through a vein into the church without rules. Without rules. And so I didn't have to struggle with, is that right or is that wrong? How many of you would say you came in through very legalistic means and it was hard to break out of the legalistic mindsets? Oh, we got hands going up. And, those, the, and, and you always felt like somehow running in the background was if I don't obey the rules, God will be mad at me. And I'll be out of favor with God. So was it Christ who made you atoned or was it the rules? See how we do that? Many people think that we're only atoned at one minute. Atonement's for here on the earth. Many people believe that we're only saved and unification is only for where? Heaven. If you're atoned, if, if actually death is what gets you at one, what atones you, Jesus or death? See how we do that? We start messing with the gospel. We espouse all kinds of junk food spiritually. And we miss acceptance. I'm telling y'all, the Spirit is breathing out a message of as you are accepted in the beloved. You are fully accepted by what Christ has done. You can go to rules and regulations and you'll just stumble back again and drift. Drift from the great salvation that we have been given and planned. We are victorious in Christ. And I won't have time to go into this, but I just want to just give you a, just a, let me look at my notes here. See if I said it all. <sighs> okay, I think that's good. The Holy Spirit brings us into union. Oh, this is good right here. Now I'm going to back up a little bit. Now, I said this makes rules unnecessary. How many of you believe rules are unnecessary? Now, see, I don't even want to look because I don't believe y'all believe that yet. I don't even want to know. Because I say that all the time and I feel people go, Okay, here it is. Rules are unnecessary. You know why? They won't fix you anyway. Because a pig dressed up in a suit is still a pig. I would rather know the pig without the suit on. Suits are confusing on pigs. And the world has been so confused by pigs in suits for too long. Y'all get what I mean? I would rather you be who you are and be all out there being who you are than try to put on some religious garb that has not impacted your nature to one whit and present something that you don't have and misrepresent the, my gospel that is so good. Because rules are not needed. They are simply not needed. When you have a relationship, a beloved identity that I'm talking about, there won't be, you won't need a rule. You won't need a rule to tell you what to do. I won't have to tell you to tithe. I won't have to prove it to you in scripture. You'll be like, woo, the offering plate is coming. God, you just want 10%? I got 20. How about 30? How about 40? How about 100? Lord, I give it to y'all. Lord, I want to spend, you don't tell me to pray. I'll spend all night in prayer. You don't have to tell me to worship. I just worship and adore you, Lord, because you love me and I, you have brought me into your feast house and your banner over me is <sighs> who needs rules do you think I carry around my marriage license all the time making Mike live up to some standard I do not he loves me we don't have one rule in our marriage 
but love. If love allows it, do it. If love disallows it, don't do it. Love is the end of the law. You see how acceptance fixes this? This is so great. This is so wonderful. The great mystery Paul talks about is Christ and the church. Rules are not needed. Oh, I went through all that. The great mystery in Ephesians 5, he talks about the bride of Christ and the church. He said, I speak of bride and the church, the bride and the groom. Women, here you go. Women, you are called in the body of Christ. This is your, this is your specific thing that you get to display. Men, sorry. This is our job. Women, are you ready? In the body of Christ, you are called to display bridal identification. Mmm. Bridal identification. That's what I do. Guys, you're not left out. You know what you do in the body of Christ? You display sonship. See, I know I'm, we're all called to be sons of God and we're all called to be the bride of Christ, right? My job as a woman, I'll, I'll take the bridal identification part. And the men say, you know what? I got, I'm a boy. I'm a son. I'll take the sonship route. I'll display sonship to the world. Ladies, you into the church and to the other ladies who, ha, who struggle with sonship, you know, and the concept because we are women. And women, I'll display bridal identification to you men who don't quite get it. Now, this might be a little deep for y'all, or it may not. Or you may be thinking, Andrew, you're crazy. You've lost your ever-loving mind. There's a book in the Bible that does this so well. It's called Esther. Esther, you beautiful woman, you. You completely saved a nation without a sword or a spear. You saved a nation through bridal identification. You delivered your people through a relationship with the king. That's good, y'all. And we see here Esther. She conquered not through military might, but through bridal identification. The Holy Spirit brings us into the union. He is the friend of the bridegroom. I don't have time for you to, you can read, you can read Genesis 24 yourself. Esther conquered. She did this for us. It was Esther's, what was Esther's weapon to her enemies? Close, that's true, that was in there. Names her one gift. What was her? Beauty! Esther's weapon was beauty! Oh, let's break that down a little bit, y'all. Was he give us for ashes? Was he give us... Oh, my goodness, he... He puts in, he gives us beauty for ashes. He, he, Zion is called the what? The bride of Christ. And it's also called Beulah land. He, get, he causes us to worship in the beauty of holiness. She was clean. Cleanse her through the washing of the water of the word. A glorious church not having spot or wrinkle. He beautifies us. Our Bridal identification, the source of our strength and power before the king is our beauty. Does that make sense to y'all? I'm not talking about some physical beauty. I'm talking about we've been made beautiful. So much so that he chooses us. Oh, that's really good. He loves you. He loves you. There's no wrath assigned to you. There's no wrath assigned to you. If you're in Christ, there's no wrath assigned to you. He's dealt with the wrath. I conquer through beauty. Yeah. He brought the beauty. See, that's, it's such a great typology. All this preparation, a beautification... I mean, the world has distorted beauty so much. So much has distorted beauty. I would challenge you through bridal identification. What if you could conquer the world through the beauty that you have in holiness? Not a rule. See, already, already. Uh, uh, when I said holiness, you went to us. It's hard, isn't it? Holiness. You're already holy. You're made holy. I'm holy. I've been made beautiful by the blood of Jesus.
I am a saint. I am accepted in the beloved. I'm not trying to be good enough. I was chosen. And I can come before the king, not with might, because the hostility has, is not there. And he lowers his scepter to me. Granted. 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 Bridal identification. I am accepted fully and at one with the Father and Jesus. We're dismissed.